Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games. As told by the very people who organized them, I'm Christian Napier, and today I'm really, really excited to be joined by Callum Clark, who was probably cajoled into coming onto this podcast a little bit by Colin Hilton uh, when he sent out an email and said, guys, you got to get on there and tell your story. We can't have ceremonies hogging the spotlight. So Callum, I'm very, very happy to have you join us today. It's wonderful to see you. How are you? I'm very well. And Christian, thanks very much for letting me be on your uh, podcast. I've really been enjoying this over the time you've been doing this. Well, it's funny because uh, that implies that you needed permission to come on here. <laughs> I was delighted to have you. Uh, so uh, there was no way I was going to say no. I, I really appreciate you coming on and joining. Uh, before we dive into Salt Lake 2002 memories, though, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're joining us from and uh, what life is like for you currently? I certainly haven't strayed too far from the 2002 environment. I'm sitting here at the Utah Olympic Park, which is my primary office. I'm the chief operating officer for the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation. So for those people that that moved on from the Games and wasn't aware, this was the organization that was set up. Uh, it was called the Utah Athletic Foundation prior to the 2002 Games and then uh, was the organization left after the Games to manage um, uh, the Olympic legacy venues that were probably not financially viable themselves with a, with a legacy fund. Uh, I have been here since February 2019, so I'm a relative newbie here, but I'm um, working in and around some great 2002 alumni. Most notably, we just talked about Colin Hilton, who's the CEO, uh, dragged me over from the U.S. Ski and Snowboard, not um, uh, unwillingly, but very willingly, and uh, yeah, really been enjoying this role. Wow. Well, I'm curious what it's like working for you. You actually in an office. I mean, I don't talk to too many people that are actually in office spaces these days. I'm joining you from my home. This is where I've been working for the last year. So it's nice to see someone actually working in an office environment. Yeah, it has been uh, as everyone is. Everyone has had their own pathway this last 12 months. Uh, I have been spending um, a fair amount of time at the venues. Uh, we spend uh, three days uh here at the Utah Olympic Park, I try to spend a day at the Soldier Hollow Nordic Centre and a day or a week at the at the Olympic Oval, uh, but in a very careful environment. We have a, a policy of if you don't need to be in the office, you know, don't don't come into the office. It's been incredibly important for us for a whole re- range of reasons to be um, <clears throat> in this environment so that we can be close to the venue because the venues are operating. And so far it's worked. We've been... Uh, protocols and face masks and social distancing has been king in front of our mind and daily health checks and uh, contract tracing has been a part of the course. But we're really proud of what was achieved over the last 12 months. We were able to open the venues for athletic training at different times in the late spring, early summer, and we, we were able to operate. You know, thankfully, we're, a lot of our venues are predominantly outdoors, so that gives us the power of that social distance. and. Yes, it, while I am in the office, it's not too much like um, too much different from being at home in the fact that there's often not many people around. Well, then you can hear your voice echo through the <laughs> through the building there. You mentioned the venues were operating, um, and aside from some social distancing and some contact tracing and testing things, I mean, is there anything uh, particularly different about how the venues are operating now as opposed to how they were operating a year ago? Um, yes and no. We were 
there was a lot of discussion with the, the local um, county health departments and with the US Olympic Committee on the protocols that different places were putting in place to, uh, to begin training. Uh, a lot of uh, conversations uh, with the different um, health, health specialties to, to, to give us some advice. Uh, we did this in very com, uh, compartmentalised environments where uh, at one stage, for example, the Olympic Oval, only the US speed skating team was in the venue. So they were the only groups that would test, they would be socially distanced, they would be the only ones in and out of the venue uh, for quite some time. Our, uh, outdoor venues, we were we have the the lack of space. So uh, the US aerials team, for example, was able to get into our the aerials jumping pool and train, have their own training time, and be able to get off venue and head home. I'm sure that they'll be socially distancing at home, uh, not doing much else, and and we're able to bring the next group in. But all things being told, we we did very well. It was uh, an environment that we were able to maintain. Um, a good level of uh, uh, health. We're able to keep uh, the environment with a low low level of um, infection rate, very low level infection rates, to the point that we're actually able to open up to the public in the summer and provide some uh, of our mountain adventures. This is where we get the public in to enjoy the venue, as well as at the Olympic Oval and at Soldier Hollow this winter with hockey and uh, adult hockey leagues and uh, uh, cross-country skiing at, at Soldier Hollow. So... You know, all in all, it was a tremendous lift by the staff, but it, we, we made it work or we're making it work. Well, and hopefully there's light at the end of this crazy tunnel here. The vaccines are rolling out, at least here in the States. Uh, I went and got mine last week, so I'm feeling much better about things. And, and hopefully we'll be able to continue to return to normal, whatever that is going to be. Yes, that's absolutely right. I was lucky enough to get my first vaccine. It's almost, it, I've never cheered so much for having a needle stuck in my arm. It was a, quite an emotional moment, but I agree. We're, I hope we're turning the corner and returning to a semblance of normalcy. All right. Well, included in that semblance of normalcy is our ability to hopefully travel to places again. It's been a long time since I've been on an airplane, and uh, I look forward to doing that. And that takes me to my marooned on an island question. Not that we want to travel just so that you get marooned somewhere, but hypothetically speaking, if you did go to a beautiful location and you ended up being marooned there for whatever reason, and you had only one meal to choose from, one film, and one album, what would those three things be? I, uh, I've really enjoyed this section of the of your podcast and listening to other people's uh, responses to this. I could do with a um, maroon tropical island right now. It's, you know, we're coming on spring and I'm uh, ready to get some warm weather. So I have thought about this a little. Uh, um, I'm and my wife and I are, are foodies. If I had the opportunity and I could get access to a kitchen, I'd cook my own damn meal. Uh, I'd take a beef tenderloin and wrap it in prosciutto mushrooms and puccini and give myself some great vegetables and cook up a great meal. If not, I will take a, uh, a, a Thai takeout salad any day of the week. Uh, the more spice, the better. So that, that would be the, the, the food. Uh, if I could combine that with one of my wife's um, flyless chocolate cakes, it would make me even, even happier. Uh, the album. Uh, I think partly due to the fact that we haven't been out of travel, as you can tell from my accent, I'm Australian, and we used, we try to go back once a year to see family and friends. Uh, 
there is definitely the feeling of nostalgia and the desire to get home to Australia, at least to uh, to visit people. And recently, you know, since the COVID pandemic, I've been listening to uh, the old hits of Australia. And the thing that comes to mind is uh, there's a, uh, a singer-songwriter by the name of Paul Kelly, and he's a very Australian folk singer and tells great stories about uh, the Australian life and Australian lifestyle. I think I think one of those albums would do me well on a on a warm desert island. Maybe even he he did a live set on the stairs of the Sydney Opera House. I think that'd be that'd be quite nice. Um, and with for a movie, I I really struggled with this one. But today I'm going to say Pulp Fiction. I remember watching that that movie and walking out going, now that was a movie. I don't know what it was about, but that was one hell of a movie. I don't know if I've got too much time for the rest of Quentin Tarantino's stuff. I, my stomach's a bit a little bit um, light for his, uh, his strange style, but I'll put that on my list for the movie to watch. Yeah, it's really, really nice. I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I have a fairly low threshold for for ultra violence. So, uh, if it gets uh, excessively bloody or gory, it's really not for me. But really, really great choices. I love the food choices, and yeah, I think you should be able to cook whatever you've got there in the in the Bermuda Island. So, if if you're equipped with the appropriate culinary devices you should be able to cook up any meal that you want to while you're marooned there and awaiting rescue so very very good choices well are you ready to think back 20 years to salt lake 2002 i certainly am and i I guess I, i feel lucky in that with this current role i'm perpetually surrounded by the venues and uh and the places that remind me of the 2002 games I'll, I'll share a, a, a really simple story right now. Uh, we're getting this is going to sound uh, so insanely boring, but it, it I think it um, is a testament of what the 2002 games meant to so many people. Um, someone from CenturyLink just came into our building to hook up a higher speed fiber optic uh, connection uh, to our venue, and I, I helped him get in, into the space and made sure that he had uh, he had the right access. And he came back to me at the end of his work and he said, this place was actually my venue for the 2002 games. I worked for Quest and I was I was lucky enough to be here. I, I got to see uh, uh, Jimmy Shea win the gold medal in Skeleton. And for five minutes he told his experience of working for the, the 2002 games as a, as a contractor in the technology environment. And even behind a mask, you could see the light in his eyes saying, those were some of the most astounding moments in my career, and which is great. And that just happened this morning. And I guess that's the, the really humbling thing about the current role I have is that uh, those people that were impacted by the 2002 games get to relive it a little bit when they come to see our venues. I think that's awesome. What a great story to start us off with. Uh, You mentioned you're Australian. I mean, how could we not know? We're listening to the accent there. So how did you get from Australia to Salt Lake City? Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you were doing before joining the organizing committee and your journey to Salt Lake? Yeah, I'd love to. I I guess this, uh, it started with um, a Summer Olympics in my home country. Uh, I uh, was and still am a, a deep fan of the the Olympics, the Olympic movement, and I was fairly new out of university uh, with my degree, 
and in work and I decided that I had to be involved in the Sydney Olympics in some way, shape or form, that I was not going to let that opportunity slide by. So I knocked on doors and knocked on doors trying to get interviews uh, with the um, with the Olympic Games and very luckily got picked up by uh, the the department was called Spectator Services and it was called Event Services for the 2002 Games uh, and joined a, a, a fantastic group that really emanated out of the Atlanta Games uh, and I was extraordinary learning from a really, really talented and experienced uh, bunch of people to deliver on our venue. Uh, my Olympic venue for the 2000 uh, Games was the Aquatic Centre, and I know you had Adam Gray as, uh, as your guest, and he was a, still is a tremendous mentor of mine and uh, a great uh, venue general manager. And my intent was that that was going to be a great gig and uh, and a, a great fun games. Towards the end of the games, uh, there were whispers around in our department that maybe there would be an opportunity for uh, a group of us to uh, come to Salt Lake for the 2002 games. And uh, uh, interestingly, at the same time, uh, I remember you know, standing in the venue talking to Adam Gray and he said, look, I might be able to go there as well. And I was thinking, oh, this is gonna be great. I'm gonna have, be able to work with people I know. It's going to be uh, the Winter Olympics. The Americans mostly speak English. How hard could this be? Uh, so, under the um, the the banner of Mike Lloyd and uh, Richard Bezemer and and Stevie Mirabli, uh, they picked a group of us up and brought us out on a on a contract to uh, to work the 2002 Games. So that's how I got here. So before we get to Salt Lake, you mentioned that you worked at Aquatics, but what were you doing? What was your role there in the Sydney 2002 or the Sydney 2000 games? That's right. Um, so the, the apartment was called Spectator Services. So we were. So you were in Spectator Services in Sydney. That's right. I was um, yeah the front of house manager for, for the Aquatic Center. Uh, I joined that, the, uh, that group quite early and was able to be part of the planning for um, I believe the tennis center, uh, the field hockey, uh, the the indoor venue that did the taekwondo and wrestling, as well as the aquatic center. And as the time went on, as you well know, Christian, that you honed down to your your venue. And I would have felt lucky just to be there, but um, when the management team at uh, uh, Inspector Services tapped me on the shoulder and said, "We think you should run uh, do Spectator Services at uh, the aquatic center." Uh, I was over the moon. You know, swimming is a huge cultural icon of uh, uh, in the Australian sporting landscape, and to be there and be a part of that uh, that Olympic experience was really quite special. Uh, but that's it. This is you know, tying my connection into uh, the the Winter Games. I was one of the very few kids in Australia to grow up in and around the ski industry. My parents were. Uh, cattle ranches and, and um, managed a small uh, bed and breakfast at a, at a ski area. So while the Olympics was my passion, when it really came down to it, the winter games, the, the skiing and snowboarding, that was the thing that really was of tremendous interest to me. So uh, as the rumours were going around that 2002 games was maybe a possibility, I was uh, I was blown away that there might be an opportunity for me to come out and work on Winter Olympics. 
Wow, it's so interesting. You know, we've had we've had a contingent of people that worked in spectator services come on. Craig Udian, uh, Anne Marie, uh, Emer now Holland, um, and there's others like Fiona Richmond and Sky Oxenham, and a bunch of uh, these Australians that, that that came over as part of that spectator services core that became event services core here in Salt Lake City. What was that transition like for you? You come off of a summer games in your home country, and then you go to a strange land with some old friends, meeting some new ones. What was that like for you? Uh, it was fantastic. And the names that you you raised was a part of that, was that the group that came over, particularly in the event services side, they were uh, first-class professional individuals, really uh ready and willing to put their shoulder into doing the very best they can for the for the games without any question that uh that they were going to work as hard as possible to support that the Olympic movement and the Olympic experience. It was uh it was certainly different. Uh there was a realization of the some of the uh, the resources and uh, availability um, of new technology just that simply wasn't quite ready in the Sydney Games. Uh, event services and spectator services, for example, is very dependent on a large number of volunteers and communicating with those volunteers prior to the age of email was a heck of a lot of work, um, a lot of envelopes the stuffing, a lot of call-out for large meetings and even the concept of when we first arrived that we were going to be able to send out email and get notifications and everyone was not only going to get it, they were going to read it, was uh, was uh, groundbreaking. I think the other part of it was the welcome, uh, the open arms and welcome group that, that uh, uh, welcomed us into the 2002 Games. I think that we were very lucky in the group that the 2002 games uh, sent over to the Sydney Olympics to do that, the fact-finding mission. And uh, those people, I believe, had a really good experience at the, at the Sydney games and saw uh, the quality of the, the organisation, the quality of the event. And for those people, I think we were afforded a little bit of um, grace, even though we were quirky and had funny accents, that we had delivered a great event and was well-prepared and uh, well-managed and that they were ready and willing to listen to our strange accents and get ready to work with us. I really, when I, I think about it, I, for those initial uh, month or two, I, I really just had very positive experiences being around the office, being in meetings, uh, having people uh, kink their heads as they listen to our accent but uh, welcomed our perspective uh, for for what was going uh, what was about to uh, to happen in 2002, I think the other thing, Christian, was that coming off an Olympics and where you just delivered it, uh, we remembered all the painful bits very clearly, all the bits that we did wrong, uh, all the bits that were really a lot of hard work, and I think that had sharpened our focus, knowing that we didn't have that long uh, to prepare for the 2002 games, so. You know, that old adage, ask a busy person to do something. Uh, I felt like the, you know, the group that came over and the names that you raised were were uh, ready to move and move quickly. So I think that was the other positive element there.
yeah, I know I left out a bunch of names and I apologize to people if I, if I, yeah. <laughs> Hi, Em, I'm sorry, I, I left your name out there. <laughs> I said it, but uh, um, yeah, there were, there was a great group of people coming over from Sydney. As a person who did not work Sydney and came on for Salt Lake and as a person that's a, from here, from Utah, uh, we watched the Sydney 2000 games from afar and we thought, those are incredible games. I mean, by all accounts, we we considered those to be the best games that had ever been delivered, and that that was a that was a high bar that was set by Sydney. I know that there was there there was at times a little bit of a kind of a well, we're we're a winter games, we're not a summer games, and this is Salt Lake, and this is not Sydney. You know, that, that kind of happens in every games edition where people that are working on their home games, you know, might bristle a little bit just a little bit at some of the advice or recommendations that come from their predecessors and previous games editions but on the whole uh, we were super grateful i know i personally was very very grateful to have uh, so many people from sydney and other major events come in and help us and of course you brought tim tams so you know everything everything's worth it when you put tim tams into the equation that's right and um when you can bring uh, tasty chocolate biscuits, most things improve pretty quickly. I feel that uh, I, I I got off quite uh, luckily in the, on on the winter games piece uh, with two parts. One was that the venue that I was to work at was the uh, was Snow Basin, and they just announced right as I was arriving that uh, Adam Gray was going to be the the venue general manager. So I was going okay. This is great. I've got a, a partner in crime. I didn't really uh, think about the consequences of having um, uh, too many damn Aussies in uh, at uh, uh, Olympic downhill venue. The the other uh, element which was in my favour was uh, when I was a young kid. I was a I was an alpine ski racer, and uh, it's a very small. Well, it's not much of a small, but it's a it's a community that that uh, that circulates in tight circles, and just through complete happenstance, uh, the sport manager for Snowbase and Spence Eccles, we were in our initial conversations talking, and I was talking about my love and passion for uh, alpine skiing, uh, trying to allay his fears that I was not um, uh, some beach bum surfer. Uh, we worked out we ski raced in the same uh, Fisk Continental Cups together in the Southern Hemisphere, and we had some common people that we uh, both skied with and were coached by, and I think that lowered the barrier somewhat in uh, in having that a little bit of background in some of the uh, or uh, common knowledge in some of the sports. So I guess uh, I was I was a, a lucky one in that regard. Oh, that's so great that you were able to make that connection there with Spence and. And I don't know, I, I would say ingratiate yourself with him. It's it's great to be able to get accepted into the into the new club, so to speak. I want to ask you a little bit about what you mentioned a few moments ago, where you talked about, oh, well, you know, Sydney was awesome. But yes, we we did some things we could have done better. And I'm I'm wondering if you can just elaborate a little bit on that. Like, what were some of the things that you look back on your Sydney experience and say, okay, well, we're here in Salt Lake City. We're going to do this a little bit differently. We're going to innovate a little bit here and, you know, really build in a solid process to deliver a great games. What were some of those innovations that you came up with? I think some of the, the, and 
I would say less innovation, more uh, evolution, where you, you do it a second time around and it, you, you refine your craft just a little bit more. Uh, I think some of the key parts were uh, leadership recruitment. You know, there was a, there was a very very uh, large need to bring on a, a, a you know good on the ground leaders uh, to be able to uh, help deliver the the the, uh, the plan that each of the venue teams had put together. Uh, doing that in a, in a really sequential way, I think also that the the quality of the of the general population and the engagement in, in Salt Lake was, was quite extraordinary. I think the uh, training and preparation, the volunteer training and preparation, was uh, a generation better, more um, more well-developed, uh, far better thought out, better considered in its phasing and timing and the content and the practicalities. Uh, the tools by which we were able to uh, operate through, quite frankly, leadership training that was provided by the, the Salt Lake Organised Committee was, was excellent. I think also the, uh, uh, the tools and systems to uh, manage uh, the day-to-day as well as manage the issues that were bubbling up in each of the venues. Uh, there were, uh, in Sydney, there was very good preparation but also a little bit of luck, <laughs> particularly on my side, where I think in hindsight I probably I had not been for a, a little bit of luck. I think it would have been a lot more difficult than it was. Uh, I, I was pretty uh, young and green. I think the second time around having that that very, very resolute um, desire to be fully prepared with full um, uh, multi-level contingency plans. Uh, I knew full well, and I think the team knew full well, that uh, summer games is quite different from the winter games. We're in an outdoor winter environment, and uh, we needed to have our ducks in a row. So I think it was it was definitely evolution rather than revolution. The other uh, fact was... Uh, some of the resourcing in the 2002 games, I was, and this is going to sound silly, but blown away by. We rocked up and they said, "Here's your desk, and here's your computer, and uh, here's your email address." In the Sydney games, the by the time we got to the end of it, the allocation was uh, one IBM computer to about every five managers. So you had to wait your turn, and they'd shut off email uh, a good month before the opening of the games, and it was down to you know, the comms room sending out bits of paper. So rolling up and finding my own gateway computer and my email address and uh, a, a well-oiled uh, IT mechanism uh, supporting the, the games, I was, I was thinking to myself, all right, here we go. We're going to really be able to cook with gas at these games. so interesting i remember um mike loin you know he he had developed this dpat solution for the dot planning and event services was doing a lot of innovative things there Uh, mike in some ways was kind of like 10 years ahead of his time and some of these things he 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 was a very very uh interesting smart guy and i always enjoyed working with him you mentioned um, systems to track issues, and I'm curious uh, what kinds of issues you found when you were planning for and then operating the games. I mean, what were some of those issues that you maybe maybe you had foreseen? Like, oh yeah, we know this is going to happen. You'd already planned for it. You had done your 
scenario planning and so on and so forth. And maybe there's some other things that came up that were a bit unexpected. Yeah. Before I speak to that, it's, uh, that's fantastic. DPAT, that's a, definitely an acronym I haven't heard in some time. And it, uh, I really enjoyed that about the 2002 games is the, the innovation that uh, people like Mike would come and say, I've got an idea. How can we make this work? And we'd scrum together, come up with a what was initially thought as a head brain scheme, and then out comes this system that allowed us to manage headcount and deployment uh, so well. That was quite extraordinary. Uh, with regard to the issues, and I, I think m- most of your guests have, had spoken about this the same way, is we were, uh, we were planning to uh, uh, what we felt was a very well-prepared script uh, our headcount planning was uh, was going extremely well. Uh, our venue reviews were going extremely well with the uh, with venue uh, management and with uh, uh, the Secret Service. And then nine eleven hit, uh, and that obviously changed the game and changed the the focus of not changed the focus, but I it definitely brought that focus into a very sharp view about what we had ahead of us. And what we need to be prepared for, and uh, there was, I think, from from most of the the crew, and I'm sure you'd share this, is that a very very clear white line between those those two uh, between the first week of September and the third week of September of what was dominating your mind, what was dominating the day to day meetings, and you know those uh, the day to day issues that we had didn't go away. Um, and the small stuff of uh, snow removal or uh, uh, CO2 alarms going off at three o'clock in the morning in tents because uh, heating systems were uh, remaining on or, um, or uh, night um, uh, security uh, getting pushed over in their little huts by moose that were uh, trying to check out the scene, that all still happened, and, and that was, I, I guess, some of the, the fun memories of the of the games. But it was all with that that umbrella of we are uh, definitely um, the, a very large event in a very very public space in America, and uh, we need to get this this uh, safety and security for our the the athletes, the media, the broadcasters, and the and the spectators. And we need to get this right and we can't slip this up. So to answer this, that question in a roundabout way, that's the thing that 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 uh, was the largest memory coming out of what our data issues were. Well, you, you brought up 9-11 and it, it reminds me, and I think we've had a couple of people maybe talk about this on the podcast, but in, in a lot of Olympic Games environments, you have private security that's running the mag and bag, running the PSAs, the pedestrian screening areas. And in Salt Lake, you know, it was thought, well, hey, you know, we could we could use event services, staff or volunteers to to facilitate or help out in this in this kind of effort. 9-11 happens. So what's the impact on your operation? You've done all of this planning and then this seismic event hits and you've got to kind of revisit uh, some assumptions. So what was that like? That was uh, that was a really extraordinary experience. Um now, I was not very close to the beginning engagement with the U.S. Secret Service, you know, with the standard operating procedures and the uh, and how we were going to operate the mag and bag. But it was it was proceeding well. Uh, uh, then nine eleven happened, and then uh, it certainly uh, 
turned the volume up on on the level of detail and the quality of of the uh, uh, of our preparation. Uh, I I clearly recall our first meeting and training session as a department with the U.S. Secret Service, and the group was there were uh, there were consummate professionals. And we're going through the, the training in great level of detail. And towards the end of the session, went through some of their experiences of of what you know the, some of the, the really tricky things or really uh, dangerous things that happened, whether it be a presidential detail. And I remember sitting there. You know, here's this Australian from a small country town going, "What on earth?" What on earth have I got myself into? This is this is way out of my league. I know how am I going to deal with this? But uh, it, it it worked, and they were uh, supportive. And I recall that the the decision when uh, National Guard was was brought in to provide that extra level of support. And once the you know the the culture of the, the leadership and and the security agencies from the federal government gave the perception of we're here to make this thing safe. We're not, this is not a test. We're not going to try to um, catch you out. We're here to support the success of the, of these games and the success of the mission. Uh, it, it certainly became, uh, I, I, I relaxed a lot. I think the team relaxed a lot, but that's it. I, I, I remember, uh, and we drew straws to um, present some of the training and there was a module for the the mag and bag training with the volunteers, and uh, I was the uh, lucky one to be on the first session of the training. And I don't know how, and I, I swear it was rigged. I think I think Fiona must have rigged the the hat or something. I don't know what the circumstances were, but I was going to do the um, the training about the the mag and bag, <laughs> and so we were in. Uh, the facility in the room was full of volunteers and we went through it and in my section and I got up and I, I worked through the script and it, it, it was going quite well. And while I was going through the script, um, I saw the leadership that did all that training from the U.S. Secret Service file into the back of the room. And I was going, oh, boy, I've got to get this thing right. <laughs> this, is, this is serious. So it, it all went well. And then right at the end, I made the the – the natural um, statement when I, I got to the end of the script saying, right, so any questions? And then the hands went up. <laughs> and I was going, no, 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 actually, I don't want any questions. You can't, I don't know how I'm going to answer this, particularly with the, the Secret Service leadership in the room. And they were actually pretty uh, uh, benign and uh, uh easily answered but the moment when the hands went up uh that my heart fell out of my body and hit the floor the funniest question i think it was the second question they said um what do you do with a baby in arms and my my response was well um uh, I, i'm not entirely sure we will uh, get back to you but please uh don't uh don't have the parent hand uh the baby in arms um to uh, to a bag checker to open their diaper. I don't think that's appropriate. That was my, that was my only answer I, I could come to. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's being put on the spot in front of all the Secret Service personnel. Uh, good lesson learned. Don't ask the question. 
any questions if you don't want any questions. Uh, I'll definitely keep that one in mind. Now, Callum, you mentioned a, a few moments ago that the workforce that event services recruits, selects, trains, uniforms, schedules, deploys is a sizable workforce. I'm curious in the snow basin venue, you know, what give us a sense of the scale there. I mean, how many volunteers paid staff roughly, if you can remember, were under your jurisdiction as a kind of managing event services there in Snow Basin? Christian, thank you for asking that question. I thought I said no questions. Now, uh, uh, I, for those that are still listening, I'm probably going to get this number wrong. It was a lot. It was a lot. And I'm trying to think. I recall that the, the Sydney Games, I had, there were seven to 800 volunteers working at the Inspectator Services at the, uh, the Aquatic Centre. And I seem to recall it was almost double for Snow Basin. But with that said, uh, our team at Snow Basin, because we were uh, we had a very specific schedule, our team integrated with the opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies also. So that that um, that expanded the the uh, the program. But on the positive side, the the team leaders and volunteers, I, re- I clearly recall when we were starting to brief the team that was selected to be the, the Snow Basin volunteers and we were talking through both you know, the, the obligations of Snow Basin as well as our request for them to be at uh, opening and closing ceremonies and the look of uh, excitement and elation on these people's faces, and rightly so, it was just a, a, this magical experience to, for them to say, wait, what, I get to be working at the Olympic Games at the at the site of the uh, Olympic downhills in Subaji. And, and then I also get to be at the opening and closing ceremony. That is uh, quite extraordinary. But I'm not going to commit to a number because I can't remember it. <laughs> Sorry, Christian. <laughs> Come on, you must give me an exact count. No, it's totally fine. I just know that the workforce for event services is sizable. You know, probably one of the largest workforces in the games belongs to, to event services. So I was asking it because I was curious what it was like managing such a large workforce leading up to and then during the games themselves? Uh, I think the short answer to that was uh, a pleasure. It was a pleasure working for that size of workforce. Uh, the, I'll, I'll say it again, the quality of, of people that were volunteering their time for these, uh, for these games across all the functions, but particularly as the, <clears throat> in the event services, was spectacular. and. Uh, uh, we had <clears throat> team leaders uh, and and sector supervisors that came from the like a broad array of of backgrounds from uh, ex military personnel to people in the construction industry that were uh, building uh, large buildings to um, river rafting guides that had a quiet winter on their hands and it was uh, this amazing melting pot. Of uh, of people with really um, unique leadership qualities, but the thing that I was uh, I, I found so valuable was that they so many of them were, were not rattled. They were uh, extremely uh, focused on being aware of the quality of the experience that um, that was um, that. That they were going to give uh, give to whatever it was, if it was for the media or for the uh, for athletes in facilitating the, the access to the venues, uh, 
and uh, the desire to make sure that it was an experience that they were going to uh, live to remember. So uh, there was, uh, I think, the other part of that, and going back to the lessons learned, uh, the Sydney Games, I think we underestimated um, the level of resourcing and preparation we needed to have in order to pre-communicate uh, to teams to divide and, and uh, the roles and responsibilities within uh, each team about scheduling and deployment and uh, equipment checks and equipment returning and all of the subsets. You know, I think the, the Sydney Games, I certainly I was... Um, of the uh, of the mindset of oh yeah we can do that we'll we'll just do that after we do this and we'll do that which is you can't do everything at once I think the 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 division of the roles and responsibilities and they, they being able to clearly articulate those really did help and at the end of the day having these uh, these folks uh, have fun with the experience and that was that was part of the joy of the of the games. Yeah, the games were hard work, but they also were a lot of fun, like you just mentioned. I'm curious for you what a day in the life of Callum Clark was during games time up there at Snow Basin. Did you get any time to take a breath or was it just full on for the entire period of the games? I think like most people with most events, you know, you start with there's not enough minutes and there's not enough minutes in the hour and there's not enough hours in the day to be uh, to be prepared. And the first day of the, the Olympic downhill, the men's Olympic downhill was, uh, that was a washing machine of activity. There was a massive amount of interest and pressure and loading in 25,000 spectators, media and broadcasters into, uh, into Snow Basin was a tremendous feat and it, it, not without its, um, without its issues. And that was, you know, we were on venue, I think, we started our day at 3:45 a.m. to ensure, as the as the deployment and preparations uh, went, to ensure that we had all of the staff briefed on site and ready for for uh, the, you know the first uh, volunteers and uh, course workers to come into the venue. And it, you know we would get off venue at uh, seven or seven thirty at night. Uh, so that was fairly hard yards. Uh, as we continued into the uh, into the games, uh, it certainly uh, became easier. And, and Snow Basin, we finished our competition uh, program quite early in the in the first week. Uh, and then I was at the beck and call of the other venues to uh, to support those venues. And the other venues were doing a, a fantastic job. So I was mostly superfluous. I'd go around just be asking people how I could help at Deer Valley and, and Park City and Soljolo. So that was, um, I did have a, a chance to, uh, to breathe and, and experience uh, the games. And I, I think the, the real, the second chapter of that joy was the Paralympics. The Paralympics, and similar to the, my experience in the Sydney Olympics, was the team was still together. We'd honed our operations. We were a well-oiled machine with great uh, underlying communications. And uh, the the bit more simplicity of the Paralympics with a, a, a lower uh, spectator numbers, uh, a little less on the, the security front, made things uh, gave us the opportunity to really enjoy that you know, that part of the uh, of the Olympic movement. 
Well, I, I'm looking here at this timer that I have, and we're already 45 minutes in, and I feel like this conversation just started. It means I got to start wrapping up, but I don't want to start wrapping up because I know you've got so many great stories to, to, to share. One thing that I did want to ask you about was what you did, and this is kind of rewinding the clock a little bit, but what you did in your leisure time on your weekends, you know, what was that like for you? You've got a bunch of folks here from Australia. You've got people from all over the world that are coming here and working these games. A lot of them are out of towners and they kind of bond together. And so I was just curious what life outside of the OCOG bubble was like for you, Callum. Yeah, that was uh, quite the experience being in um, a new town with a, a lot of expats, not just from Australia, but from all over the, the country and all over the world. It was uh, it was an amazing uh, time where uh, we had the opportunity to make the most of the uh, of our time. Where the email would go out, and whether it be uh, we're mountain biking at Deer Valley, and we'd, we'd gather and go, or uh, there's a group going to Yellowstone, right? And and you know, gather up the crew, and we're going to go out and experience it. That was uh, a tremendous tremendous fun. And uh, I, I consider myself very lucky in that uh, through that fun and the, the social scene, I met this uh, charming, intelligent, beautiful uh, woman who worked in accreditation that had a similar accent than I uh, as I did and, uh, uh, and a love for winter sports that ended up being my wife. So it made for, it certainly made for a fun time being able to uh, uh, outdoor recreate enjoy the uh the beauty of of utah as well as um uh meet someone that was going to be my future wife it was quite a quite a special experience for sure well that's an incredible legacy of the games a personal legacy family the legacy of family i think that's fantastic was meeting her your goosebump moment she will tell the story of how she met me and i i didn't put my best foot forward at that time i was you know some some people play hard to get. I, I played more the hard to want uh, kind of individual. I was, <laughs> I was pretty scungy and <laughs> I was definitely living a bachelor's life. Um, but that was uh, at the time I didn't know it, but that, uh, one of the goosebump moments was, you know, being able to experience the, uh, I think it was the Olympic trials in aerials that was hosted at Deer Valley. Uh, right around New Year's prior to, and they filled the stands and they, uh, they threw the aerialists and I can recall going, oh, yeah, this is it. This is what we're going to see uh, at the Olympics, just bigger and better. And I, I, I remember I was, I was with McKellar at that, at, at that uh, event and we were going, this Olympics thing is going to be tremendous. Um, the goosebumps moments, I, I, uh, I struggle because I hear of, your prior guest and I go, yeah, that's my bit of the mind, way better than mine. I think the, a couple of them were, uh, uh, I was off venue on the, the day of the men's downhill and um, uh, dealing, you know, as the, as the spectators were loading in, I got into the venue right around the, 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 the first five athletes had already gone down the hill and I came into the spectator bowl and there was 25,000 people erupting with, uh, Darren Rolls and Bodie Miller racing, and that sea of humanity. You know, the so many times in 
And, and since this, I've been involved in uh, winter sports. They say, oh, well, in Europe, it attracts so many people and there's so much passion for the sport. And that rivaled any moment of uh, any sporting event with that kind of uh, that kind of uh, passionate, knowledgeable, um, and loud, loud um, uh, spectator crew. So that was that was uh, definitely one of them. Um, a, a hair on the back of my neck moment was something I really wasn't expecting in the Winter Games. Was I, uh, the rumor had went out that uh, Alyssa Camplin won the gold medal in in aerials uh, and. Uh, while the, the Australian anthem was something that happened on a, not a regular base, but it happened often in the Sydney, Sydney Games, it was not expected, certainly not from me, that we were going to be listening to that at the, um, at the, at the Salt Lake Games. And we gathered up the, the crew of Australians and rushed down to the, uh, the Medals Plaza and uh, Fiona Richmond was and uh, Dave Gustafson were very kind in facilitating us to be able to get get in, and a, a boisterous um, singing of the Australian national anthem uh, under the stars at um, at in the, the the Medals Plaza. That was a really really cool moment and something that that will be remembered for sure. You mentioned that after those games were over, um, you went on, you did different things, eventually ended up at the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation. But give us a little sense of your journey post Salt Lake and and kind of take us out with some of the lessons that you learned along the way that have really become kind of these underpinning guiding principles for you that could also be helpful to other people. Oh. Thanks, Christian. And again, this is a uh, interesting, uh, interesting questions. And the time is melting past. Clearly, I've been talking a lot. Uh, the the pathway after the games, I went home uh, to Australia and uh, worked on some major events: uh, uh, the Sydney Marathon and the the two thousand three Rugby World Cup. Uh, I came through Park City on vacation with my then girlfriend, now wife, Michaela. And uh, we gathered uh, they, uh, Finn Gunderson, who was the deputy general manager at uh, at Snow Basin, gathered together a small dinner party of expats that were still around, and had a small dinner party, and that was fun. And I uh, uh, at the towards the end of the dinner party, uh, Finn was then working for the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association, and said, "Oh, look, there's uh, I think there's a job about to be posted in the events department at the USSA. You should apply." And, my, and I had a job in Australia, and I said, sure, yeah, put my name in the ring. Put my name in the ring to be the next president of the United States too because I got about the same chance to get that job as well. Uh, but I, I did the interview and then thought no more about it and went home to Australia, and uh, three months later they called and said, we'd like to get a three-year work visa and have you come out and work for the events department at uh, US Skin Snowboard, uh, for which we talked. We, we, we wanted to come back. It was a beautiful place, and that was a three-year work visa. Uh, that lasted 12 years, I, I was at uh, US Ski and Snowboard. Had a short stint. I went up to Vancouver uh, uh, briefly in 2007 for the Vancouver Games, then got dragged back to uh, US Ski and Snowboard. But that was uh, 12 years working in the events department, became vice president of events and then the chief of events and operations. So I, I really spent a, a lot of time uh, working and thinking about um, uh, events and 
uh, conduct of, uh, of skiing and snowboarding competitions before I moved over here to the, uh, the Legacy Foundation. Uh, uh, sage words of wisdom from Callum. Pretty unlikely. Uh, I think there's far more intelligent people that have, have said uh, uh, far more uh, compelling things than, than I have. The, uh, the thing that has been true to me, and this is something that I learned from Utah, the concept of um, uh, having the rising tide lift all boats and being as much of a support for success as to achieve success. And I have uh, definitely found in my time, uh, particularly here in Utah and being involved in, in skiing and snowboarding uh, so much and now with the Legacy Foundation, in uh, providing efforts to uh, bolster, support, embolden and enable those that are around you to be uh, to make uh, timely decisions, be bold about their positions, be innovative with their ideas, and uh, support their success. It only supports the success of uh, of uh, your role, and in some ways, it can be you can feel it's quite obtuse at times. But you never know when uh, the support or a lending hand to a third party can come back and benefit you days, weeks, months, or even years behind. So that's that's what I got. Well, I think it's great advice. Um, thank you so much for sharing it and also sharing your story. It was a pleasure to catch up with you after many, many years, Callum. Now, if people want to learn more about the work that you're currently doing with the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation, or they just want to catch up and swap stories about Salt Lake 2002, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Okay, step one. Come to the Olympic Park. When you're in town, come back to the Olympic Park and uh, or the Olympic Oval and, and check us out. Uh, the easiest way to get a hold of me is uh, my email address is at cclark at uolf.org. But if you uh, Google Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation or DuckDuckGo or whatever you uh, may choose, uh, you will find our websites and what we're doing. It's uh, it is a pleasure being involved with uh, the organization that had been built from the 2002 Games and the level of activity well over and above just uh, uh, operating venues, you know, inspiring youth, uh, 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 sharing the Olympic spirit, engaging uh, kids and adults of all kinds in um, the world of uh, Winter Olympic sports. It's truly uh, a satisfying experience. So that's, a, that's been a lot of fun. But come out and check us out. All right. We definitely need to take you up on the offer and come see you at Utah Olympic Park. Callum, thank you so much for a great hour of storytelling. I really appreciate it. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon. Callum, again, thanks so much. Complete pleasure. Thank you, Christian.